Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking about the history and the potential future of investment banks in commodity trading. Two decades ago, many banks embarked on building substantial commodity trading platforms. A decade after that, many banks got out of the sector entirely. Now, with the super cycle, volatility, and the energy transition, there's a real case for banks getting back in, and all those incumbents right now are making stellar returns. Our guest to discuss the history of banks is Kevin O'Reilly. Kevin is a Wall Street veteran with over 25 years in investment banks in and around the commodities sector, from sales and trading, through to wealth management, and through to investor sales. Kevin has had a front row seat on the roller coaster ride that has been investment banks in the commodities sector over the last 25 years. As always, you can support the show by leaving a review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Kevin, thanks for joining. Thank you, Paul. Good to be here. So we've got a big story to tell. We're talking about the, the banks and their involvement in commodity trading, commodity sales and trading, and ultimately ending up at a point where making the case for why they might be needed in the, the current commodity cycle that we're in, combined with energy transition. Before we get there, can you go way back and just when did the banks start truly having or getting involved in commodities trading? Commodity trading, as as we know, it actually began about 4,000 years ago in Sumer or modern-day Iraq when the the people there were using clay tablets to denote the number of goods delivered on a predetermined date incredibly enough. However, I think our story really starts around 1981. In 1981, uh, the US government ceded oil price control to market participants, and this marked the beginning of the WTI crude oil spot market. The ensuing volatility led to the creation of the WTI futures market in 1983, and then we saw the Brent contract, I think, in 1988. 1981 had several other interesting financial happenings. Fed fund rates approached 20% after Volcker um, in 1979 uh, decided to free flow rates uh, to try and cure the, the previous decade's stagflation period. Salomon Brothers arranged the, for IBM and the World Bank to do their first ever fixed uh, floating currency interest rate swap to uh, solve an opposing problem that uh, I think the World Bank and, and IBM had. Many banks for, for many years had been participants in the bullion market due to historical currency uh, and reserve linkages. If you remember, the gold standard was a, quite a common currency standard, which the US relinquished in 1971. Rothschild's bank was actually the chair of the of the poorly named Goldfix, and there were many other banks who had participated in, in precious metal and base metal trading activity through merchant bank, banking activities. So if you think of, of storied names such as Barclays de Zueta Wed, uh, owned Barclays Metals Group, which was a, a huge uh, bullion trader back back uh, for, for many many years. More recently, we'd had the silver markets go to historic highs due to the egregious behavior of the Hunt brothers. Their activities threatened to destroy seven of the nation's top 50 banks. Interestingly enough, they were a family who'd made their money in oil in the 50s and had been banned from agricultural trading in the late 70s for trying to corner those markets. Uh, They declared bankruptcy in 1988. So in 1981, something else happened. There was a a small family-owned commodity business 
which had been established in 1898 by a man called Jacob Aaron. Uh, its roots were in New Orleans, a coffee trading outfit, and by the 1960s, they were trading quite a number of agricultural commodities and precious metals and foreign exchange. Jay Aaron continued to grow, and their banker was Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs were approached by them to find a buyer when the partners decided it was time they'd grown the firm as much as they could and they needed external capital to continue growing. Goldman found them several partners. They didn't like the ideas. They were quite private uh, people. And so the, the senior management of Goldman Sachs came up with the idea to buy the company themselves. Uh, J.M. agreed, began the entrance of certainly Goldman Sachs, but I think it's the starting point for many of the investment banks to to engage in the commodity markets. A little after a year later, one of their key uh, employees moved to Morgan Stanley, uh, where they set up a commodity trading operation that would eventually grow to rival J. Aaron and help earn both the banks the sobriquet of the Wall Street refiners. Fantastic. So uh, a mention of Volcker there, who will uh, play a, a bigger role later on in the in the story. Okay, so Wall Street refiner, we've often heard the term. What did it mean at that time to be a Wall Street refiner? And I think it's important at this stage, before the story gets too complex, to talk about exactly how the banks were making money in commodities. Was it just trading on their own accounts? Were they starting to offer client services? You know, just give us a bit of colour there as well, please. Certainly. Well, I think when we're looking at the period sort of 1981 to, to 1999, both, both Morgan and, and Goldman predominantly traded for their own accounts. However, they played pivotal roles in um, multi, you know, many other commodity markets becoming open and liberalized and, and tradable. They played key roles in the power markets in the EU and the US, uh, certainly the, the carbon, the birth of the EUA scheme. In Europe, and uh, I mean, they were even responsible for the founding of the ICE exchange, which has gone on to be pretty much the preeminent commodity trading exchange. Their activities uh, were also spurred by client interests, as you rightly point out. Just the fact they were very smart people and they had access to Wall Street derivative savvy as well. You know, over the decades, they earned billions of dollars essentially prop trading, and they they really led the way for for many other banks to to copy them because of a certain amount of jealousy and. And obviously, if you see somebody else doing something that you think you can do, you have a go yourself. And really, I think they led the way for many of the super commodity merchants we see today who are very sophisticated, very clever, very good by showing them the, the you know, better, better risk management techniques and, and really enhanced financial methods for funding and optimizing supply chains. I want to really nail the Wall Street refiner a bit and whether they were trading physical or not. So interestingly enough, Morgan and Goldman were both trading physical commodities you, you'd had the creation of, of the the crude futures contracts which are ultimately deliverable later on you'd had refined product contracts they themselves had engaged in trading of of real physical commodities morgan had a particular history with heating oil they had leased the new haven tank farm typically the biggest player in the in the nymex heating oil market goldman sachs had had a similar experience in the, the gasoline system outside of new jersey i forget the name now Right through their story careers, actually. I mean, Morgan Stanley at one point had a sort of a supply and offtake agreement with the Ineos refining system in the UK and pretty much came as close to being a refinery as, as you could think. The term itself and the business that they did is rather simple. Um, you know, as, as the, the markets developed and, and grew and, and they were able to create customized derivative solutions for the oil and gas producing, oil first and then the gas 
producing community in the 90s. They typically bought crude from these these clients on a, a fixed basis so that the client could have the certainty of cash flow and, and realize that their production had been hedged and their operation would be profitable. Uh, on the other side, there was a proliferation of client interests spurred again by these banks in the, the transport sector, the refining sector, which typically involved uh, doing trades the the the, the, um, the other way around, which was buying the and selling refined products to to that client base. Um, so if you are buying crude and selling refined products, you're effectively a refiner. They really were financial refineries. Obviously, there wasn't necessarily a, an operation, but uh, first and predominantly through derivative activity, but second uh, at a physical level, there was a lot of, of two way trading as well. And that's that's really why they they deserve the sobriquet that they got. Okay, so. We're coming up towards this a watershed moment, which is is the late nineties. But the backdrop to this watershed moment you're about to describe is you've got obviously developing commodity markets. You've got new financial instruments, new exchanges coming online, new demands as a result of what was at the time. Now we see in hindsight very clearly, but growing commodity supercycle driven by China for the most part. And you also have you alluded to the deregulation across the gas and power markets which ultimately at that time was managed by merchants in the space, tightly regulated space, generators, et cetera, starting to to operate in those deregulated markets. So you have quite a ripe backdrop. But at that time still, you know, you had Glass-Steagall in place, which meant that commercial banks weren't allowed to get into this form of proprietary trading, a merchant take on these merchant risks. But what happens in the late 90s that changes the the, the regulatory landscape dramatically, which ultimately leads to the rise, rise of many, many more banks getting in? It was quite an, just like 1981 was a pivotal year. As we approached the end of the 90s, that was a pivotal period too. You've got a new currency in Europe. You have liberalisation in legal and commercial structures due to the sort of the the, the will and insistence that the European insistence that the European Union will, will work as a functioning bloc. Um, at the same time, as you, you rightly point out, we are seeing deregulation across the gas markets. And even though those markets had been predominantly controlled by very specific players, namely producers of power or producers and shippers of gas and, and the, the large industrial cluster or municipalities that they served, banks are very, very good at, at breaking into markets because they fundamentally provide credit and they provide finance. And they start off sort of servicing at one level and then they very quickly learn how the market works. And then very often mm-hmm. they, they actually work out how to do things better in many cases. And I think that will be an important point we'll bring up right at the end of this presentation. So the next big thing that sort of happens in the bank space, I mean, I don't wish to offend any other banks who were sort of in and around the commodities at that point. And there were there were many bankers trust had a successful business built largely on the fact they were very, very smart derivative traders. Deutsche Bank had, had an LME uh, proposition and a gold business, and then the list, the list goes on. But the big thing that happened in 1998 was Citicor's merger with the insurance travelers, the insurance firm Travelers Group. And that basically was a situation where you were going to put investment banking, retail banking, insurance services, brokerage, uh, all all businesses together, which under the Glass-Steagall Act of 33 and the Bank Holding Act of, of 1956 was actually illegal. The acts themselves were there to protect everybody, and they prevented the mixing of the investment and commercial banking activities, predominantly to protect bank depositors because of we could talk about numerous financial crises and runs on banks over the years. But um, in order for that merger to go through, 
a act of Congress had to be passed. It was the Graham Leach Bliley Act, 1999, I think, and it was also known as the Financial Modern Services Modernization Act. And that basically repealed parts of Glass-Steagall, which covered all the rules we've, we've just discussed. Um, as such, it allowed for a huge amount of consolidation and a huge amount of cross-selling and a huge amount of, of cross-opportunity. The party really got started and it was signed into law by President Clinton. That act was passed a few months after the city Cornwall merger had been effectively allowed, so it was a bit of a fudge. But it, it paved the way for the um, the 1999-2009 period, which I think we can agree is the dominant role of the banks and commodities. Okay, so Glass-Steagall goes away. You've got this incredible backdrop of ultimately need for the banks. I think that's you know a, a crucial thing to point out. They were they were fulfilling a role. As you point out as well, they've been servicing these markets and suddenly realized through a combination of the credit that they have and the risk management expertise could do it as well. So really kind of 2000 onwards, despite various hiccups with Enron, which ultimately just ceded more power to the investment banks, you just had this huge explosion of proliferation of number of banks trading commodities, both physical and financial, and real success can you can you walk us through that decade and and some of the the reasons behind their success absolutely i mean look the the decade begins as as we said with the newfound freedom liquidity and commercial appetite of the repeal of glass steagall many banks were suddenly looking at every business that was available and possible and it would be hard not to notice the success of, of goldman and morgan and suddenly we had many, many banks offering hedges and structured finance solutions uh, to clients who um, formerly had had to use exchanges or weren't aware that their main bank could, could now offer them these products. The OTC market, as a result, the over-the-counter market grew, I think, at the, in the early 2000s to multiples of what the exchange volumes were. China's membership in 2000 of the World Trade Organization and the universal acceptance of globalization led to another economic boom. And certainly, I think, another commodity super cycle. And China's 20-year growth story has been highly dependent on raw materials and natural resources to fuel their Western consumer clients and, of course, a, a growing Chinese middle class. Interestingly enough, no sooner had the decade of joy for the, the banks and commodities had begun, but new challenges arrived. The banks had to scramble, and, and in May the 11th, 2000, the ICE exchange was created by 12 founding banks, all who are now trading commodities at various amounts and various success levels because of a challenge that emerged from a single commodity behemoth. Enron, which you just mentioned, had actually existed in various forms since the 1980s, but through mergers and acquisitions and the relentless drive of skilling, lay, and fast out, um, it came to prominence at the end of the 90s. It truly was a trailblazing company, and at one point it really did look like it was going to overwhelm the banks, traditional traders, and any pretty much everybody else in the commodity space. Its downfall was far swifter than its ascension, and its implosion left a huge void. The banks looked to fill, and indeed did fill very well. We've mentioned before about the common currency in the EU and deregulation. And I guess if we dig a little deeper, we we see that a bank, they got Morgan Stanley as, as an example, but I think in the late 90s, they were participating in enormous power transactions. And I believe one of them supplied basically power to almost half the power of the state of Georgia uh, during the financial, uh, the California power crisis, which to some extent was precipitated by poor regulation and indeed, I think, 
nefarious activity by certain Enron traders. They they um, they actually went on to build a number of jet fuel peakers to to supply wholesale power markets in the energy starved starved state. Yeah, but with Enron's demise and a number number of other merchant utilities at the time, you know, I'm I've got a number of comments on talent I'll, I'll make in, in a little bit about this time this time period, but all of those individuals, whether it was businesses or as teams, ended up being going to banks right the, the void of the loss of enron a whole slew of them el paso etc those teams those prop trading teams in particular went to the banks uh, ubs acquired enron's book etc and we see during this period i think it was merrill's bought ekt deutsche had already got uh, bankers trust and got some other but it was an incredible period of growth for the banks globally can you just define for us, just compared to perhaps the decade before, what are they now doing to to make their money? Why are because this is the period when we're starting to see multi-billion-dollar revenue numbers for relatively nascent commodity desks in some cases. It was you know so how were they making that money, and what was it the banks were able to do in that time period better than the independent trading houses that subsequently thrived in the next decade? Okay, so I mean, ultimately, they, they all had slightly different businesses, but we're in a period now where you've got a lot of consolidation, a lot of growth, and people want to do this, they want to do that. You know, corporate businesses starting in 81, as I pointed out, had done hedges in FX and interest rates with the banks. And now, uh, as we see, there were 12, 15, 20 banks who were able to offer hedges for the US EMP community, refiners, airlines, transport, you know, truckers, trucking, uh, industrials markets in gas power coal oil the, the, the list is end any commodity at one point you could think of there was a potential to write a derivative on fundamentally the transactions were hedges they were profitable but there were a lot of hedges related to lending activity or structured finance when banks offered a certainty of cash flow for corporates and even sovereign companies uh, countries excuse me uh, through hedging commodity exposures, borrowing rates dropped precipitously, and in some some companies were actually able to borrow cheaper than the sovereign debt of the company, the country that they're resident in. Um, and we used to have this term we use called uh, effectively piercing the sovereign ceiling, as it were. In those deals, I think the majority of the VIG was in the commodity hedge because prior to 2008, with so much of the business in the OTC markets, the term markets themselves were a lot less visible and so the the, 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 the the margins were quite large. There were some huge deals done and there are still huge deals done today on the sovereign side. I, I you know every year you'll see a Bloomberg story about the government of Mexico hedging production because so much of the, the revenue of, of, of Pemex goes towards uh, running the country. I think uh, when Libyus had been imploded around 2010, Morgan Stanley had got involved and, and had facilitated the oil part of, a, of an oil for food program. So, you know, a bank doing good. Airline hedges got bigger and bigger. Some of the largest that were ever done were, were Emirates and China Aviation, which for, for those of us who worked in the markets are, are some famous stories in and of themselves. Shipping, CMA, various other shipping companies. But the, the, the list goes on, but fundamentally they all involved a derivative hedge which locked in a price for either a buyer or seller. The fiscal trading that Morgan and Goldman had, had obviously been engaged in was part for their account and part uh, part of their broader physical financial trading, which is still really their account. But a lot more banks looked to their success, and, and many of the banks were actually bigger and had bigger balance sheets and, and, and bigger finance, and they had 
the same customers or similar customers through their investment banking division. And so they were able to engage in merchant activities that were similar or the same as MS and GS to, because they had also developed these derivative desks to cover those clients. They had clients who had physical commodity exposure. So much as MS and GS had done, the rest of the banks also looked to capture more business along the supply chain by being a physical participant where possible. I think there was quite a lot of jealousy and envy as well. So you had these services being provided, then prop trading around that. You also, I mean, money begets money. And the interest in commodities was enormous for that decade. You know, it was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal most days um, in some form or other. And that drove a lot of institutional money wanting to get into it, as well as the hedge funds starting to trade commodities, which only bolstered the bank's activities, right? That was a great opportunity for them to service those clients. So the banks had a number of businesses. Obviously, they had done extremely well in equities and fixed income with the institutional client base. The passive people were the, the sort of the pension funds, the asset managers, the, um, the separate account of the insurance companies. And then, of course, you had hedge funds, which had been around, I think, since the late 50s, but sort of very much grew to prominence, I think, from the 70s onwards. Historically, with a, a commodity market, the hedge, a hedge fund would sort of fill the gap between the buyers and sellers on the exchange. If you, in the old days, if you looked at the the reports of the position reports and who held what, the, you, you had commercial participants, which would obviously be sort of oil companies doing hedges and and other participants, uh, you know, re, you know, refiners uh, doing the hedges the other way because they need to buy oil and sell this and so on. And so, forth. and the gap in buyers and sellers was often met by the hedge funds who who deemed themselves to to, to be there to sort of help markets adjust. They they took money out of the market until they balanced. With the proliferation of these products and the ability to trade everything from, you know, steel rebar to, to, to coal to dry and wet freight, every type of oil refined product you could think of, uh, parts of, of, of the, uh, the fractionation column, ethane, butane, pentane, and similarly, OTC products on agriculture and metals and, and very, even very obscure metals and plastics suddenly every, everybody had an opinion on every market and it was fabulous for the banks because they were there to to facilitate the placing of the bets and an awful lot of those bets were either driven by the activities of the bank which had had to warehouse huge risk or had looked to exploit a market opportunity that they'd seen uh, themselves the liquidity was there but and, and risk could be dispersed one way and liquidity could be provided the other way i think some of the most famous hedge fund guys uh, without naming names obviously julian robertson's tiger fund uh, went on to spawn spawn a bunch of very clever commodity traders who sort of have sold names and then of course when you think about the passive investor golden sachs yet again first First in line, created, I think, in 91, the GSCI, which was a passive investing index, which caters to real money and asset managers. And they turned both their commodity trading expertise and obviously their understanding of what uh, an asset manager or pension fund needs from a fixed income perspective into a, a, a highly marketable product, which is available today and has evolved over 30 odd years into a very smart index. Uh, there are many other index providers today, but they started that off. I think uh, there was a former Shell Brent cargo trader called Julian Barracliffe who, who popularized re relative value trading in commodities. And I think he inspired, he certainly inspired me, and he inspired a generation of bank salespeople to promote this sort of trade concept and ideas. You know, prior to 2008, the, the money was sloshing about. And if you had a, a good idea and could 
we used to say sort of three green lights, historical, statistical, and fundamental. So if you could find a fundamentally dislocated market, typically a forward market, and typically because of an asymmetry in client hedge flows, you sort of had a story. And then the next thing was to say, okay, this market is distorted because of these reasons. And then you had to sh- would show a picture and say, statistically, it's a five standard deviation move, or realistically two, say, you know, here's a historical chart that's never been here. And, you know, obviously your hedge fund trader could sort of look at that and say, yes, this, this market is out of whack. And obviously providing the story was there for why the trade should convert or, or become mean reverting again, there was business to be done. And that, that business grew to rival the corporate hedging at one point that the banks were engaged in. And, and people actually forgot because we didn't appreciate credit risk at the time. But the banks prior to 2008 were giving enormous OTC credit risk to their commercial corporate counterparts and yet the hedge fund community actually had to post initial margin with the banks or held all their money in the prime brokerage accounts at the same banks and prime brokerage as a separate business actually grew and had real help from the fact that commodity markets developed as well so you had this situation where a lot of these banks and the same two i keep talking about obviously we're doing better and better and becoming a bigger and bigger part of the revenue story of the bank and they were actually helping other parts of the bank to generate newer revenue streams so the investment banks as well offered prime brokerage services to institutional clients and as commodities grew it became a bigger bigger source of revenue for the prime brokerage business so you had a situation where the revenue streams of the bank's commodity businesses were obviously big for the business themselves but were aiding other parts of the bank. Prime brokerage was a big winner because more and more of the investor community held their reserves at uh, the prime brokerage at the bank. And if, if and it was an attractive thing to be able to sell commodities and you kept more of the, the reserves there. Um, similarly, even in investment banking and other parts of the bank having the ability to talk commodities and to talk risk management and to offer hedges became a powerful selling tool for the investment bankers uh, who were otherwise going and pitching more traditional banking products. So so this was a great, you know, another great thing that commodity trading at banks did for the, the bank at, at large. So it sounds, if I were to summarize the core foundational roots of the bank's success during this period, it's ultimately cheap money, right? And, and almost no limits to the leverage on their balance sheets, you'd argue artificially cheap. They've got this access to all of these clients who perhaps aren't as savvy when it comes to risk management and pricing and so forth. So we look at this decade and the period before, but particularly this decade, the real edge that the banks brought was obviously cheap money, you know, and just almost endless credit, almost artificially cheap money there. You've got this great access to a whole slew of your commercial clients who do not have this expertise. And even if they had that expertise, all these markets are predominantly OTC, so there just wasn't that visibility and transparency that becomes a big part of the story in the next decade. Is that a fair statement on kind of why these banks thrived? It's a very fair statement, but I think cheap money, access to more and more clients, and um, you know, let's not forget the banks ultimately were good traders, and even those who didn't have a real history steeped in commodity trading had an understanding of most other asset classes and they had good risk management skills. And so they were able to solicit client interest and, and serve client needs. Volatility also just attracts, attracts interest in general. The investor, investor businesses, as we knew, grew in the, in the, for both passive and active managers because the, the, the markets themselves did 
wake up through from the you know the China story and all the other things we talked about. But along the way, there were quite a lot of blow-ups and scandals and, and various other things, and that, and that sort of fed on itself. It became a feedback loop. The, the bigger the story in the Wall Street Journal, the more calls we would get as to, could, could I do this? Could I do that? And lastly, as I said, the banks did succeed because of the ancillary revenue generation from having a commodity business in the bank to, to earning better prime brokerage fees to, to you know winning better banking mandates. So it, it was a, a, a very much a holistic uh, situation in the end, right up until 2008. So, right up until 2008. So, but there's a, a parallel story here that maybe I can opine on a little bit in the run up during this period, which is the banks had a profound impact on the talent community as well, because ultimately you had banks that had traditionally paid much larger base salaries, much more lucrative bonuses tied directly to PL performance, etc come into the commodity space, take talent, compete with merchants, oil majors, producers, who were on an order of magnitude lower in terms of compensation, with a few exceptions like the likes of Enron. But in general, it was an incredible period of wealth creation and changing opportunity, financial opportunity for the individuals themselves as well, driven by the banks. I mean, there were some incredible sign-ons, guarantees in the tens of millions for leaders to either jump from bank to bank or to go from a merchant utility to a bank. And it just had a profound impact. And also, this was a period, this is the story we're about to tell, because these markets were predominantly OTC, there were many roles around them, particularly in marketing, mid-marketing, that subsequently no longer exist. But it was a an incredibly rich period for people in the commodity space, there was that very famous comment, I think, on the Financial Times, where if you could spell derivatives, you <laughs> you get hired on uh, hired on Wall Street or in uh, or in London. Okay, so so suddenly or relatively suddenly, the party stops. And contrary to perhaps what many people would think, it didn't stop immediately with the global financial crisis. That set in motion a number of regulatory and other things that would culminate in a period of of decline for the banks, a substantial decline. Can you take kick us off then? So global financial crisis, 2008 and on, what happens then? So the actual record years for the banks were, I think, the financial years 2008 and 2009, a little bit less 2010. The global financial crisis led to inevitable regulation of financial markets, which included the Volcker Rule, which was a prohibition on proprietary trading. So they're Paul Volcker returns to the story. The full act was called the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, commonly known as Dodd-Frank. And it was a United States federal law that was enacted in July 2010. And that's when the fund really stopped. About the same time, there were pressures internally from management of a lot of, um, from the management of banks to rationalize operations, look long and hard at the true cost of funding and capital, something that nobody had done sufficiently well prior to 2008 and suddenly realized that a business that was profitable in 07 was no longer profitable in 2010. And then the prudential regulators of the bank, which uh, at the time obviously would have included the New York Fed for a lot of the New York-based banks, really were pressuring banks to go back to being far more traditional in, in the way they acted. So if you like a, a repeal of the repeal of Glass-Steagall. One thing happened in particular that affected Morgan and Goldman was more than the others was that the regulators started assessing uh, Section 4K of the Bank Holding Company Act, uh, 
um, to explore basically physical commodity trading is, is truly a complementary financial activity and it doesn't pose a, a substantial risk to safety and soundness of the depository institution or the financial system in general. Uh, I think we can all agree commodities had nothing to do with the global financial meltdown. And uh, I, although there have been commodity blow-ups over the years that have caused damage and hurt certain institutions, there haven't actually been any that have directly taken a bank down. The closest, interestingly enough, would have been the, the silver crisis of 1980, but that was, again, precipitated by nefarious activity of an individual or individuals. This starts to come to a head around 2014 when the main commodity heads of the banks are hauled before Congress for a hearing, Section 4.0 of the, the Bank, Bank Holding Company Act, which, which really got to the nitty-gritty about whether the banks could engage in merchant operations and could they hold uh, investments in commodity-related companies and so on and so forth. The hearing was televised, which means it was going to be heavily biased, a lot of grandstanding, those of us who've lived and worked in the U.S., for many years, I understand that's more the, the situation. It's less about getting to the to the true story or a fair outcome. But shortly after, we see t- at the end of the year 2014, Goldman has sold their LME storage company, Metro, to the Rubin Brothers. And Morgan Stanley, after very, very, very successful run in, in oil and products trading, has to divest all its physical assets to castles and commodities. The big winners, I think, are twofold. One, the commodity exchanges. Bilateralism had become... The, the fear after 2008 and too big to fail was was on everybody's lips. And so the centralization and monitoring of risk, whether it was directly through uh, commodity exchange trading or through the reporting of trades, the CEFs and, and various other mechanisms were there to protect everybody. And it, I think it was somewhat unfair on commodities because, as, as we repeatedly said, commodities weren't the issue in 2008. Capital costs saw, compliance and regulation really ramps up. And it makes a lot of the peripheral commodity businesses, the second and third tier players, simply uneconomic and they shut down. And things go from bad to worse, right? So you've kind of got these autochthonous issues in uh, you know, regulation and so forth. But then there's these external issues start happening as well, which is you've got you know, the end of a commodity super cycle. We didn't know it at the time, but you have lowering prices across commodities, you have the number of geopolitical issues that leads to sanctions, dollar-denominated business, etc., particularly around with, with Russia and the events in Ukraine at the time. And all of this compounds to basically mean not only is the wallet smaller as a result of regulation and all the costs that have come into the business, restrictions on what they can and can't do. And as you say rightly, the real driver of that was probably everything going on to exchanges and that bilateralism going away. But you just have bad markets as well, so it's all it's all comes at once really that has a dramatic impact on of the size of teams that banks have in the space, and also the number of banks doing it because a number of them just get out completely. Yeah, they do. Many of the, the as I said, the second and third tier players were not particularly profitable. They were hoping to sort of break in uh, by dint of force of, of will or what have you. Much as we had seen historically high commodity prices in 2008, if you remember the WTI contract, I think hit $147. Natural gas went bonzo too. In the, the following couple of years later, technology gives us uh, shale plays and suddenly, you know, commodity prices are right down in the doldrums. Coupled with the fact that, remember, corporates had learned in 2008 that their hedges would have been at risk should the bank they hedged with go go under. And and so a lot more of the business was shared out more evenly as a, as a credit, credit mitigation strategy by corporate treasurers, which made it 
harder for banks to make money in two ways. One, they, they lost share of, of good clients they formerly, let's call it, owned for want of a better term. And secondly, when, when the business is all being shared around, it's harder to take a, a position or an opinion, which was actually then not allowed after 2010. But prior to that, you would have been able to say, well, I know this oil company's hedging. If I disagree, I'll just take all his hedge and I'll do what I want with it and nobody will know. But when a client then starts having to deal with 15 people, everybody knows what's going on. And, and so you're, 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 you're at the party naked, for want of a better word. So people couldn't make money trading that way either. And that, that you know, as you said, these things compounded to, to and then coupled with some scandals and fines and some sanctions, uh, it, just, it, it, it just became a negative feedback loop. Many banks, they simply shut down and, and the, the more famous ones had to severely scale back. So much so, a number of business, uh, a number of the fixed income divisions that were at one point branded FIC, fixed income currency and commodities, reverted back to the old uh, FID fixed income division to highlight the lack of importance of, of commodities in the bank. And I think it was a, a final insult to some of the, the formerly lucrative businesses and, and original engine of growth. Yeah. There's a whole other episode, I think, on doing an analysis of if a true cost of capital was applied to many of these, many of the banks involved during that period, whether they would have been as as lucrative as they appeared. But that's a different story. Okay, so the important thing to say here is that this has also a dramatic talent impact as well. Many of those roles, as I said, kind of went away with the move to exchanges. There just wasn't that need for that, as many salespeople or whatever it might be. And the opportunity itself declined. You couldn't have these physical traders sat in banks for the most part. So it was a real winnowing out of, of the talent as well. Uh, there were some other impacts as a result of regulation from the GFC around bonus numbers couldn't be more than X, which actually ironically just led to base salary inflation, which we're still living with. Ultimately, the winner in that decade, when we look back, it was the independent trading houses who weren't impacted by much of this regulation and you know had global operations, physical operations that meant that they could service the needs that were still out there, even during this period of relatively low prices, relatively low volatility. So now that kind of brings us up to today, you know, we are at least decent evidence to suggest that we're beginning of a commodity super cycle or two, three years in, driven primarily not by China this time, but by energy transition and some other, you know, governmental policies around the world and just a lot of volatility as a result of a global pandemic. But we're in a situation where prices are rising, volatility is returned, and ultimately as well, there is a lot of change and flux going on in the commodities world, almost a an wholesale revolution away from hydrocarbons over the next 20 years or so. So are we at a point now the banks could return? And indeed, if so, why? What is the problem that they would solve? So can you give us the, the case for banks? Yeah, absolutely. Regulation's here to stay. Banks have gotten used to it. The last couple of years, they've all put up stellar numbers. Uh, it's because as much as they adapt and evolve to markets and opportunities in markets, they adapt and evolve to regulation. The US banking system particularly has done remarkably well. The balance sheets are strong and they, they're putting the numbers up there. And, and as, as such, they need to look for new revenue drivers and new things to do. So that's obviously one of the, the reasons they might look at commodities again. Um, commodities are big news. I agree with you. There is a super cycle 
I think Goldman have suggested started around 2019, and it's clearly going on in the traditional commodity markets. The pandemic and the geopolitics have certainly uh, made life difficult and made commodity prices go a, a lot higher, and, and obviously high prices attracts interest. The, the other huge thing, which is, is truly generational or will be multi-generational, is the great green transition. And that's obviously the transition to a hydrogen, so to a hydrocarbon-free economy. And, you know, that will be led in part by transition fuels, in part by carbon, whether it's voluntary or the EUA system, and obviously technology. There have been estimates that are all over the place, but some people have put the, the cost of the true transition uh, as high as $50 trillion by 2030. I think this is another story for the banks because banks still, banks still are the primary source or at least conduits of the capital required to achieve a lot of these things. Green projects, regardless of their altruistic nature, require certain cash flow uh, to succeed. It's, it's a, just an old common sense thing. And again, banks, as, as we've just been discussing for the last 30 minutes, um, have been historically the most innovative providers of tailored risk solutions in the markets. You know, going back to their experiences from 1981 onwards should mean that they are, again, the go-to supplier for transition fuels and carbon solutions and, and the, the risk management required to make the great green transition successful and viable. Interestingly enough, for the first time in, in a generation, really in, in my sort of adult lifetime, geopolitics and inflation are actually genuine concerns. They pose a severe threat to everyday life. And in times of trouble, governments have, have also looked to the banks for help. Uh, if you think uh, Rothschild's the Battle of Waterloo and, and first bearings bail out, JP Morgan in 1929, the stock market crash, uh, Republic Bank and, and the silver crisis and, and the big 14 in New York with long-term capital, which was 1999. And the, the list is endless. But the banks have, have behaved their behaving responsibly, they've earned money, and uh, it wouldn't surprise me if, if their relationship changes with the regulators and the governments because of the good that they can do. Many banks did keep some level of commodity engagement, and banks with um, a history in commodity lending and, and trading in their DNA would be the logical re-entrance. Banks focused on green finance should look to have commodity trading as a complementary service, if nothing else, if it's not a primary focus, um, because they, they will have the ability to help their clients and, and indeed to handle their own internal risk management. Um, the volatility in the 2020 and 2021 markets through the pandemic, inflation and, and geopolitics has, I think, again, highlighted how important the banks are in terms of providing better risk solutions and allowing corporates to to manage the volatility of their financial hedges as they wait for their physical hedges to be liquidated. I think that's a really interesting point, right? Because last year, and we've covered it on this podcast a number of times, is these horrendous margin calls, that volatility, and, and many corporate institutions, including the banks themselves, we're talking now maybe five to 10 years worth of institutional memory. So you might not have CFOs and teams that have the expertise to just deal with this level of volatility in their feedstocks. So you are going to need banks to play a bigger role there. We painted this picture of the history of the banks getting in, then they have through a confluence of skill sets and capability and outside factors have a really good run of it for a period. The last decade has been a challenge, you know, regulation, which of course they've adjusted to, as you rightly point out, but also bad markets, less interest, etc. And now we're, we're, there's definitely a case for them to come back or starting to come back. And we're seeing that, right? We saw last year stellar earnings from 
those banks that have maintained substantial commodity trading operations. In our discussions prior to recording this, you know, you're quite a quite passionate about the idea that there is a real fundamental role, a set of problems that the banks can solve, and only the banks can solve, as it relates to energy transition, particularly transition fuels and carbon itself. Can you just talk to that before we wrap up? Yeah, certainly. I mean, look, fundamentally, banks are full of intelligent people who like to solve problems. For the last 12 years, they've been heavily, heavily client-focused. They always were to some extent. As we discussed, they had a, an element of, of dealing for the house, and it, it, the last decade has really been all about the client. Whether they lost a lot of the institutional knowledge or not in commodity could be a problem, but in many ways it isn't because they've developed and continue to perfect risk management as, as a concept in general for f- financial assets. So fundamentally, you have a, a group of a subsection of the financial industry that have improved risk management, are absolutely client-focused, are still the conduits to driving capital to the places that need it and supplying what is needed to provide a safety net for the capital. So this is why I believe that in the green transition, they will play the major role, uh, irrespective of people being able to make large one-off investments in a particular project here, a particular project there. The green transition itself is going to have a number of problems that, that need to be addressed and haven't as of yet been addressed. Transition fuels and carbon are on everyone's mind, but as I said, they have inherent issues. When you look at a commodity, the transportability and storage of that commodity are critical drivers of term structure and volatility. There will be no term markets or market depth until these products can be stored and, and transportation infrastructure is in place to move them. Electricity, as an example, has the latter but not the former, leading to prompt on hedgeability. Hydrogen, which has been a, a big buzzword, and, and we've, we've all learned new terms like green and blue and turquoise and uh, there was another colour the other day, grey hydrogen, I think, um, has neither. Let's not forget black hydrogen. Black hydrogen. Today, I actually listened to another podcast and I heard the term blue carbon and ocean carbon. So I, I, I love all these things. I'm, I'm feeling very woke right now. But ultimately, the traders and the banks will struggle to replace the fossil fuel asset optimization returns from transition products at present, no matter how much we talk about it. That being, and, and lastly, we should also point out carbon remains quite a tricky prospect. On the one hand, everybody agrees we need to stop polluting, but we don't have a perfect system and we don't have whether that system is to, to truly neutralize carbon emissions as opposed to make everybody feel better to guarantee the, the, the veracity of an individual project, which would mean that an investment by a polluter on one side was, you know, they've made amends on the other side. It's relatively uh, one-dimensional market still, and greenwashing is genuinely a concern for a lot of corporates I've talked to recently. These issues have to be solved. I don't have all the answers today. I can think of proxies, but the reality is if we look back to the 1990s, the banks broke into newer markets that were deemed hard to penetrate then and provided solutions that industry participants did could not. Their success is testament to the fact that they, they were able to do that. It's irrefutable logic. I believe, given some time, effort, and support, they will solve these problems again, and they will become the nexus of information and commerce for the transition economy. And I think, again, they will be able to match the needs on both sides of the green market and warehouse spaces risks through their networks and the clients and the raw trading talent. It won't be perfect, but if anybody can do it, I think it is the banks who will be able to do it. Yeah, I guess is the final talent story is, you know, uh, where are these people going to come from? And uh, it's going to be a challenge, right? Because 
the last decade has also been a period of underinvestment in people. Those people, for the most part, sit now back at utilities or in trading houses. Some of them won't remember the bank's last run at this. So, you know, that might not be an issue, but, but the, the bank's getting back in again, which was certainly a story in the, uh, in the 2000s. But it is going to be a challenge. And I think, as you say, they are positioning themselves as one of the key, if not the only potential solver that can bridge capital and investment needs in this energy transition. That might attract talent in and of itself. I think it will. I think I think the, the green story, because it affects everybody at a, a personal and an emotional and a, a generational level, is just becomes a, a story for for young, smart graduate types and and even you know people in their twenties, early thirties who've who've got other skills that can be brought to help solve the problem. So I think, given the unique nature of it, it's not a get rich quick scheme. It's a we got to do the right thing here scheme. Invariably, leaders, responsible people, and heroes rise when the challenge is there. And I think that will happen. And I don't see why the banks can't be the pathway to allow those people to, to come to the fore and help help make the future a better place. Well, it's been a, a really interesting discussion. It's been a, a part good walk down memory lane and part sort of uh, exciting that uh, the commodity markets and the energy transition are back in the news. And uh, there's a, a real need for the financing community to be able to support it. Absolutely, and I look forward to seeing them do it. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.